Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Dungeonistas, and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're not already a subscriber, I suggest you do so because it'll make your life at least 10% better. That's proven by scientists. More importantly, though, you'll get all of our past episodes and you'll get all of our future episodes delivered directly to your device. And that is worth doing, so subscribe immediately. Once you've done that, I suggest you do some other things. For instance, follow us on Twitter. I'm at jbeardmore. This podcast is at The Rugby Dungeon. And, of course, there is the world's biggest rugby podcast, more than 2 million downloads as of last week. The Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast, starring me, Tim and Phil. And you can find that at Rugby Podcast on Twitter, as well as our Facebook pages. So go and check out that for our Facebook Lives. Lastly, I want to thank everyone who has bothered sending me a review for both Egg Chasers and, more importantly, for this podcast at least, for Rugby Dungeon. It's really appreciated. We love to know what you think. And so far, all the ratings have been really, really positive. Do that because it's important and because there's some algorithms in play which pushes up some tables which apparently are very, very important to those people who, well, who know about these things. So thank you for doing that if you've already done it. And if you haven't, well, go and do it. It can't harm, can it? Today's guest is Gavin Mortimer. Gavin's a fascinating character. When he's not writing about French rugby, he's writing about Second World War history. Um, Just a really, really interesting guy with huge amounts of knowledge about French French rugby and in particular French league rugby the stuff we talk about mainly challenges the assumptions around what we see from this side of the channel going on over in the top 14 for example is the conditioning as bad as we think do they really not travel well away from home what are the reasons for this and on top of all this there is a French presidential election not the one you're thinking of involving uh, Marion Le Pen and a few others the one involving Bernard Lepore for the French Rugby Federation, and in the whole scheme of things, it would seem that French rugby is going through a very important phase, whether it be a awakening from the last 10 years of their, well, what could only be described as a malaise, or is it something a little bit more? Is it more of a revolution? Anyway, we find out all of this. Gavin's a fascinating guest. So without making you wait any longer, here is my interview with Gavin Mortimer. How are you, Gavin? You okay? Yeah, very well. Thank you, JB. So what have you been up to today? What happens in the life of a French rugby journalist? Um, well, I'm doing a lot of... Uh, interviewing a lot of players uh, for various South Africa uh, SA Rugby magazine and more uh, um, South African guys, obviously a lot of players here in, um, in the top 14 and the Pro de Deux. Also doing a lot of stuff for uh, Rugby World magazine and the website. And just really... Uh, you're conveying all the news, the, uh, the, the French game, it's uh, forever in a state of flux and uh, there's something going on and there's presidents having hissy fits and there's coaches being sacked. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's drama every day. Excellent. Now, now, I'll be interested, how did you end up in France doing the job that you, that you do? I came over about 16 years ago and to work for Eurosport and um, that didn't last very long but I kept on, uh, kept living out here and I do, I, I, I write books too on, um, on, on subjects, history and, and World War Two. so uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a pure freelance writer and uh, just enjoy, always, always enjoy the French way of life and uh, the country and the people and uh, they can be infuriating but they're lovely once you get to know them so uh, 
so that's how long I've been out here, yeah, and it's um, it's, a, it's a good way of life. Crikey, uh, so you spend your time interviewing players, writing rugby books and World War II books. It's, uh, it's like the ideal dinner party guest. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave others to decide if I'm the ideal dinner party guest, but it's certainly a good, uh, good life and enjoyable, yeah. Excellent. Well, I thought we'd get straight into it then. Um, I was looking to talk today uh, a little bit about the French clubs and mainly the differences between the the English Premiership and probably the most comparable league to it, which is the top 14. And I think when people think about the top 14, the first thing they think about is money. So how much do the French clubs actually spend? And is the golf and finances really as great as we're led to believe? Um, That's a good question. They, I mean, the salary cap said to be 10 million euros a year. And in fact, funny enough, today, uh, Toulon, who were allegedly had bridged it last year by 41,000 euros and had been fined 100,000 euros by the uh, FFR, um, the LNR, they, um, that, the FFR today uh, annulled that fine and uh, said that uh, they hadn't breached it, and they were uh, they were releasing them from their fine, much to the delight of Murad Boujela, who'd been very, uh, very um, uh, against, very angry at the fine. Um, uh, you see, a club like Toulon is an interesting one because a lot of people think that um, uh, they just Boujela is pumping all this money in, and uh, that does him a discredit because he's actually over his ten years since he. Um, invested, became the the president of Toulon and, and then invested his own money. And he did invest a lot of it, uh, of his own money at the beginning, several million. But he's a very astute businessman. He made his million through comic books and publishing, really mm. came up from uh, from nothing. And uh, uh, and he's set in, in, in place a whole network of sponsors and, and commercial deals. And that's really how now uh, Toulon... Um, finances itself and it's um, it, it's a club that uh, has a lot of big sponsorship deals um, but it, it's, it's not wildly uh, excessive in uh, it, the images it obviously it's got some big name players but it doesn't throw money to the wind and at the same time it does um, it, it does uh, bring on a lot of young French players, which is often overlooked. If you look mm. at someone like Eric Escan, for example, uh, Anthony Bellou, who have both come through the, uh, the French youth system, and uh, uh, Shockey, of course. and uh, So they've got quite a few players that, uh, that have come up through the system. And um, it's, it's the same with a lot of these clubs. You look at Claremont, they've got a big deal with Michelin. And, uh, you know, and interestingly, in the last couple of seasons, a club like Wafts, for example, has been investing heavily in the transfer market. So, um, so while they are rich, they're not... The difference in salaries, and I've talked to an, uh, an agent, a French agent, who uh, asking him about the, the difference in salaries between the top French players and the top players in the Aviva Premiership, and he says it's not that great. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think the, uh, not to do a disservice to Toulon, but do you think the reason they're bringing through so many French lads at academy level is because they don't have the option to bring in that middling player. They've got all the capital invested in the top few superstars and everything else is supplemented with youth. Or is it a little bit more Yeah, that's a good that? point. I think that's true, is that they have, uh, they have um, bought in. They, they tend to go for the really big names um, and, or, as you say, bringing through the, the younger French guys. I mean, a, a good example is Charles Olivon, who... Um, Signed, who was obviously now in the uh, French team, played in the back row in the three tests, um, just gone, or he started the Australian and New Zealand games, a, a great player. Um, and he came from Bayonne uh, a year and a half ago. And really, it took him about a year to find his feet. He's only 22. Um, but he's, he's someone now whose uh, market value would have shot up in the way he's been playing this season. But they are a club that um, uh, are... Um, do try and blend youth with experience. And I think the problem, part of the problem that Toulon have had in the last season is that they didn't realise it at the time, but when they had that, uh, the, when they won their three um, Heineken Cup, or 
Champions Cup and Heineken Cup titles. Mm. Um, they had it was it was centred on that team of uh, the core of the team was Guito, Carl Heyman's Bacchus Bota, Danny Rousseau and Johnny Wilkinson, and they had a wonderful chemistry. Um, they were not only great players, but they got on to get chemistry with that yeah. with that wonderful team and how you can't buy that and uh, as they as they discovered in the last season with them had Quade Cooper and uh, Mananonu they they've you know, big names but haven't haven't had the same spark and haven't uh, haven't lifted the um, brought their the talent that they showed in their native countries to so it's it's um it's a question of um, of when they do buy players, and I think French players, French clubs, more and more now are more careful about the the players they bring in. A, a good example, for example, is Racing. They had really a disaster with Johnny Sexton, Dan Lydiot, and uh, Jamie Roberts, and they paid them huge money. And the three of them were, to put it uh, to put it bluntly, a disaster and uh, for Racing. And uh, they've learned from that experience, and they, and they now. Uh, Carter, for example, they're paying him huge money, but at the same time, they know what he's like as a person, and he's conscientious, and he's got a very good work ethic. That's really interesting to bring that up, because those are three individuals who I consider as very conscientious professionals. Uh, why did it not work for them in wrestling? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of it is, is to do with, with the culture. It is a huge culture shock. You know, I spent a season playing in New Zealand when I was younger and uh, it's actually on the other side of the world but it's, it's no real difference from, from living in the UK. They speak the same language for a start and they have a similar outlook on life etc. Um, in France not at all it's only uh, 20 miles across the, uh, the channel but um, firstly there's the language barrier and a lot of players are unable to get over that and that's why Johnny Wilkinson again made such a success of his life and I was talking just last week to, to Daniel Kotz, the South African who plays had six five seasons at uh, Claremont now plays for Castra and won a French cap uh, three years ago mm. and he speaks fluent French and he's got, got a farm in South Africa but he he's um, he does a bit of uh, he he looks and he he's got his friends with farmers in in France and he likes going to farmers markets and he's really um, embraced the culture and that's a way to do it and if you don't do that which is what Sexton and Roberts uh, and Lydia never did, um, then it, it's very hard because there's just this barrier there the whole time. Now, why do some players, are, or why are some players able to get over that cultural and linguistic barriers and others aren't? It may be an ego thing that, that some players are just too proud because learning a language involves a lot of um, falling flat in your face because you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. But, you know, don't, don't worry about it. The French, the French have more respect for someone who tries to speak French than for someone who just doesn't even make any attempt. And that's why, funny enough, I was talking to my, uh, my daughter's godfather um, just last week. He was up for the, uh, for the New Zealand game and he went out for dinner together. And he's a, he uh, lives in Toulouse. He's a huge Toulouse fan. Um, but we're saying just what a, uh, what a hero of his, Johnny Wilkinson, remains because he was someone for the way he played, but also for the way he carried himself off the rugby field, yeah. the way he totally um, bought into the French culture. And he was, a, he was a superstar before he arrived in France, but he really just started from scratch again. And, and just the other thing on that is a former teammate of, of uh, Johnny Wilkinson's, Jamie Noon, who was... Uh, uh, had three uh, successful seasons at Breve and uh, still lives in Breve. He was, uh, I remember talking to him and he said, he used a very good analogy that you just wipe the board clean when, you, when he came to Breve. And everything that he'd learned with Newcastle and England, he knew it was going to be different in France. And don't, the mistake a lot of players make is that they compare their new club in France to what they knew back in England, back in Ireland, back in Wales, back in South Africa, wherever, and they find fault with the French way of, of doing things. Now, the French do do things differently, but you've just got to accept that they do things differently, and yet some things will do better, some things they do worse, but if you just sort of grouch about it the whole time, then it's going to become an issue, and it's not going to lead to a successful uh, integration in your new club. Yeah, I mean, the reinvention of Johnny Wilkinson down in Toulon might be one of sport's great stories, actually. 
Um, it is no. I mean, if, if, absolutely. If you think what he was like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to re- remember now. Really, when he had over there, he just had one injury after another, and then he came to came to Toulon, and really he had five years. He had a couple of knocks, but more or less five years of being uh, of being largely injury free. It was a great, uh, and, and the same, of course, for uh, for Juan Smith and Bacchus Bota. Who, uh, who? I mean, uh, Juan Smith had actually retired, and then he came out. He had one last go at healing his Achilles, and uh, he ca- he's come back for uh, three more seasons. Yeah, um, I spoke to Drew Mitchell about that, and again, it's just another incredible story. It, it does make me think. I mean, what was the uh, what was the incentive to take that that amount of risk? Because those guys can't have come cheap. No, I think it's uh, it's it's knowing again. It's um, uh, it's knowing the the player and talking to his teammates and obviously back his boater. Let's take in uh, Juan Smith for example. That back his boater would have been out in Toulon already, and uh, he would have talked to him and uh, and asked him and Danny Rousseau and said to Juan Smith, you know, but, but have told Toulon about his character and that he was a sort of guy who could fit in. I mean, I, I imagine talking to Smith himself and saying, look, how is your your ankle, do you want to come out to Toulon and just, uh, I mean, a lot of players, I think, also like coming to France because Mike Phillips is a good example. He uh, he was, he's actually of, of that lot who went to Racing. I mean, he obviously had a spell at Bayonne too. Yeah. And, and he, he, I think, was in France for about four seasons. And, and I think he, a lot of them like it because particularly if they come from sort of the goldfish ball cultures where you're, you're in the headlines every day, like Mike Phillips was. He had a couple of yeah. runs, didn't he, with uh, the authorities when he was when he was in Wales. I mean, he, he comes to France and he's he's less he's he's less conspicuous. And it's the same, I think, for some of the South Africans and the Kiwis. I've read recent in- interview with Dan Carter, and he was saying it's great just walking around Paris unrecognised. He could never do that in New Zealand. So I think. Uh, that's another factor that, uh, that some of the players... And, you know, but I think that what, it, what it comes down to, JB, is if a player comes over here wanting to make a success of it, he will. If he comes over here um, for the money, uh, it's going to be much harder. Yeah. And um, the money is so great that sometimes players uh, will, will take the money and their heart's not really in it. And, and you can see that from quite early on. Well, I'm glad you, you brought up Racing earlier on. Uh, Racing and Toulon, there's obviously some clear parallels there, and there's obviously a bit of rivalry between the two presidents. How much of these guys upset the order in, in, front, um, in, in, in French rugby? And is there much in the way of resentment from the grand old club, say, your Toulouse and your Clermonts? Um... Yeah, they've upset it hugely, particularly Bourgeois, who uh, um, sometimes is uh, he, he sort of revels in his in his image, if you like, in his reputation as a, a renter quote, and um, mm. he likes upsetting the old order because the the French Federation is an old boys' network. It's extraordinary. It's like the RFU was twenty five years ago, um, and it's it's a uh, they're all the old Blazer Brigade, and uh, Pierre Camus, for example, the, the, who's been president for eight, eight years. Um, he's 71 years old, and he's very much from the amateur era. And you get someone like Bougelau coming along, who uh, uh, doesn't wear a shirt and tie, and he's got lots of money, and he's not afraid to tell people about it, and he buys up his biggest names. Um, it has upset the order, uh, and similarly with Jackie Lorenzetti uh, at Racing, he uh, doesn't come from a rugby tradition. He's slightly, I suppose, uh, with the greatest of respect uh, to Murad Bougelau, he's slightly more debonair and yeah. more conventional. Uh, but nonetheless, he's, uh, he, he's, he's similarly, when it comes to, he's an iconoclast, if you like, when it comes to, to rugby and how he uh, looks at the game and and how he puts the club before the national team, and uh, which is at the heart, obviously, of, of the current uh, uh, malaise within French rugby and the fact that the, uh, well, I think we're down to eighth in the world rankings now, France. And uh, it's, um, so it, it, but it's been good. I mean, my, my, uh, my own opinion is that it's, 
it's been good that France rug, French rugby is needed to be shaken up because France is actually a, a deeply conservative country and a society as a whole and um, that's reflected in the rugby and so it's great that you've got these guys coming along and turning it into an entertainment business as, as much as a, as a rugby league and um, yeah they can be infuriating but it gets people talking about rugby which is, can only be good. Yeah. So one of the things which people talk about most in French rugby is, well, for want of a better word, a lack of professionalism with, within the setups. Uh, is this a fair criticism? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, um, I won't name any names, but I've talked to, uh, in fact, most of the Anglo Anglophone players that I talk to in the top 14, whether they've come from... Uh, the UK or Ireland or South Africa or Australia, they uh, speak with astonishment about uh, two things mainly. A, the, the, the fitness approach, and that it's still very... It's getting better, but really, we'd rather not be doing any fitness training today. And it hasn't got that sort of um, uh, no-pain, no no-gain mentality that you get in the... In the um, in the Anglo-Saxon world and mm. um, the, the gym culture generally in France and, and I'm talking now about uh, just sort of on Civvy Street if you like is, is nowhere near what it is in the, in the UK the French sort of prefer more leisurely sporting activities swimming and uh, playing tennis and uh, uh, a nice <laughs> gentle cycle to, to going in the gym uh, and blasting out some uh, some reps on the uh, on the bench press or doing some squats, etc. So, so fitness is one uh, aspect, um, and, and tied in with that is nutrition too. It's still if you it, it, they're still a little bit too fond of their cheese and their uh, patisseries in France. Um, and the other area is is still this home and away mentality that too many French players have trouble getting up for the away games, and that that drives their uh, non-French teammates to uh, to distraction. That's really interesting, that, because I can't understand that for life of me. In fact, I'll, I'll give another podcast a plug. Um, if, anyone's li- if anyone listens to Flats and Shanks, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you don't, go listen to it. Um, David Flatman's telling a story about Frank, Frank Tonnerre not even being bothered to tie up his boots in an away game. I, I just can't understand it. What, what, what's this all rooted in? Well, it goes back actually to the esprit de cloche, uh, which is the uh, the sound of the um, church bells, which is sort of its rough translation. Now that means that if um, now I've played at amateur rugby in France, so I can uh, I can vouch for this that when you when French rugby is is deeply embedded in the south of a country, that's the heartland, and particularly these excuse me, <laughs> these lovely rural French villages that you sort of, you know, you, you go through in your summer holidays and it all seems lovely and tranquil. But when it comes to a Sunday afternoon rugby day um, and the visiting team comes into town, you will do what you do. Uh, the church bells call you to the rug, to go to the village square and then you all go down to the rugby pitch together and you will do what you, what you have to do to win the game and defend your village's honour. And so everything goes into winning at home. And it's, you know, it's a machismo thing. You've got to win in front of your family and your, <laughs> your wife, your girlfriend, your friends, etc. And then when you go away, uh, you know that the, the, team you're, the, the team you're going to play will have exactly the same mindset. They're going to be completely up for it. And so you sort of think, oh, well, we're going to lose away. But as long as you win at home, we're not dishonouring our village or our town. And that's what it's been like for for decades and it's very hard to get out of because it's what the French clubs are brought up on um, and so it's got better in the last noticeably in the last five or six years because of the influx of A foreign coaches and B foreign players who say hey, listen I want to win away too um, and so the French players uh, it, it would improve because now that's sort of a generation of the role in their 20s and so they're much more used to um, the, the mindset is much more winning away um, and you see that in some of the European competitions now that uh, French clubs will come and uh, 
uh, will win away and um, grind out victories. But if you look in the uh, down at, at the lower levels, it's still very much uh, you know pick up Mid Olympic on a Monday and look at the uh, the results of the federal games and the from the sort of the semi pro ranks and the amateur ranks, and it's uh, you get some uh, very very big scores from uh, from home teams thrashing um, their visitors. So I assume then all you need is a couple of away wins in, in a season and you're looking good for promotion. Well, uh, a Star France A player did tell me last season that they'd been told at the beginning of the season, right, our, our aim for this season, if, if we can win four games on the road, that's our target. <laughs> and uh, he, he was a, he was a non Frenchman, and he was amazed at this. He was telling me this, laughing, and he said, four games away from home. It's extraordinary that we go into a season with with that ambition." But but that's very much what it is. It's right. We're going to win our home games, and then and then get into the um, uh, try and get you know win win four on the road, and that should be enough to get us into the playoffs. And then, of course. Uh, the, the semi-finals are a, a neutral venue, so. Uh, but yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's still uh, that that uh, that mindset still does linger a little bit in the, in the professionals. I said it has got better, but it's uh, it's something that um, is is going to take more time to eradicate completely. So. If they're happy to spend all this money on players, I don't understand why they don't take that final jump and spend, well, I don't know, save the money on Dan Carter, say, and bring in a proper conditioning staff and a proper nutritionist. Uh, I don't understand why that why that bridge hasn't been built yet. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, some clubs are, and uh, but they, they, it's coming, but it's still very much um, an amateur mindset in in france that they they talk about rugby it's almost a way of expressing oneself and you see players waxing lyrical about this that uh rugby is an is an art and uh they uh, they talk in that wonderfully flowery way that only the french can and that it's uh it's uh it's about finding out about yourself it's uh as, as a man too and uh rather than that more sort of rather prosaic, pragmatic approach that the uh, Anglo-Saxons have. And so in that way, they, they think oh, it's as if, and this is one reason why French rugby, the national team, has suffered in the last 10 years is because they haven't been able to, they were great in the 80s, 70s and 80s when rugby was amateur and when you all really had the same fitness that you did a couple, you went training on a Tuesday and a Thursday night and that was it. And so that meant that there was more space in the field because players weren't as fit, defences weren't as well organised, and it was very much play what you see, which suited people like Blanco, Sella, Chave, Minel. Mm. And now that it's so, um, almost you know, in a way like chess, as some people have said, and that doesn't suit the French mentality. The French love to play their rugby um, in a way that was almost like an art form. And uh, uh, again, almost sort of uh, disorganised, organised. No, was it disorganised, organised? If you should I mean by that, that it was yeah. running it from your twenty-two, and but but players would know where you were going to go, and there'd always be someone on your shoulder, and you could throw a sort of an overhead a back a pass over your shoulder, and someone would uh, would be there, and um, it's. Um, they're only now, I think, and of course with Saint-André, he took them to this awful power-based game using the likes of Bastereau, and the French hated that, and uh, they they would rather, as, as I mean, it's been very interesting to see the reaction to uh, the New Zealand defeat, that in, in a way, <laughs> France have, have almost, in, in some quarters, uh, chalked it up as a moral victory, because they... They played more attacking rugby and they were more adventurous than the New Zealanders. And, uh, yeah, they lost. But uh, the, the French, there's still some French people who would rather play uh, expansive, exciting uh, 15-man rugby and lose than um, play uh, a more pragmatic style um, and with no tries and win because that's not rugby to them. And that's why they hated 
the Saint-André era so much and, and why they're so happy. There were some uh, two or three letters in this week's Midi-Olympique saying, oh, it's wonderful to see France <laughs> playing with passion and beauty and grace and panache and etc., etc. So they're happy again, even though they're not winning. Well, uh, I mean, Gainu, uh, Ga- how do you say his name? Gainuvo, Gainuvez, how is that correct? Guinovez, yeah. Guinovez. It was a peculiar appointment for me because I looked at it in two ways, which is it feels like it's about 10 years too late. And the second one was, will he take France back to being France? When you look at the Toulouse teams that he built, especially the last few, and they seem to be very much in the model of that Saint-André power game. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. He's, he's yeah, Toulouse... I mean, he's a very interesting character, uh, Noves. He's firstly, it's important to point out that he's his two coaches, Yannick Brew, the forwards coach, um, and Jeff Dubois, who was the backs coach when Stade Francais surprisingly won their top fourteen title in um, fourteen fifteen season. Um, they are they're doing a very good job, and um, uh, Noves is almost like a manager too and he deals with the press which was always a problem with both Marc Lievremont who was coached from um, 08 to the end of the 011 World Cup and uh, the 2011 World Cup and uh, Saint-André and so he's good at handling the media and doing a lot of the admin stuff and, and overseeing everything and uh, it's uh, Brew and Dubois who are doing a lot of uh, the hands-on coaching but no I mean I agree with Noves because he and it's worth pointing out that uh, in in that period when Toulouse were were all conquering a, a decade and a half ago, a he had some great players, the likes of uh, Michelac, Poitrano, um, you know, Byron Kelleher, Baptiste, uh, Baptiste Delasalle. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, Vincent Clark, always these great players. And uh, he um, uh, so and and they were uh, they were ahead of other French teams and um, and also I think the in Britain in the Britain and Ireland uh, it was just beginning to come through the the, the sort of what was ne- the professionalism what was needed you were you were getting the the old guys who'd come up through the um, the amateur era were I suppose the likes of Martin Johnson were were coming to the end of their career and you were getting the professional guys like the Johnny Wilkinson era and uh, um, Will Greenwood, etc. Um, um, and so, because Toulon really were started to, to decline from around about uh, 2009, 2010. 2010 was when they won their last European title and uh, then um, they won their last top 14 title in 2012 and since then they really haven't had a sniff of another title and it doesn't look like they, they will this season or for for any time soon because I think from from what I've been told the really the a bit like Manchester United when Ferguson left mm. he'd he'd run the show completely every, every aspect that it all sort of collapsed when he went and it's the problem for Hugo Mola at uh at Toulouse Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, um, so <clears throat> yeah, is well, there's no doubt that he's got them playing a more attractive 
uh, style of rugby, this offloading game and uh, really putting width in it, but also using the power of the forwards. Um, and yet, in his, in, his, in his 2016, they've played 10 and lost six. Uh, and, and, you know, that knew, they should have beaten Australia, second-string Australia team. And, and I think they flattered it to deceive against New Zealand. That New Zealand is a bit like a boxing contest where France were on the front foot throwing the punches, but New Zealand were absorbing it with ease and then just throwing a couple of big punches of their own when they felt like it and that they're everything was well within their control, even though they weren't actually um, playing that well. And so, uh, you know, Eddie Jones has is, is said that he wants to have three players competing for every position in, in England, which I think is achievable. That's not achievable for France because there are too many foreigners, but also because of the way that the, the game is taught in... Um, well, there's no, there's no competitive rugby in, in the French school system, which is a huge problem for them compared to the, really? to the Anglo, Anglo-Saxon countries. No, I mean, my daughter who goes to school, in, uh, she's, she's 12, and uh, they, um, they don't do any. They, last term, they were doing circus skills. This, so uh, the, the fact that the French, what that means is, and uh, I was uh, Bernard Jackman, the uh, Grenobler, head coach was telling me this last season that he would love to pick more uh, young French players in his uh, uh, squad to, to uh, hire them. But he's, you know, he said that you, when you get a 19-year-old French guy and a 19, 20-year-old South African, um, there's, there's just a world of difference between their, their technical skills because the French haven't got them and That's the amazing. South Africans have. Uh, because they've been playing um, from about the age of six. And so this is something uh, Bernard Laporte, who uh, the, uh, the, the battle is raging at the moment for, to become the next president of the FFR, the French Rugby Federation, and the elections are on uh, Saturday. And it's Bernard Laporte um, up against the former Toulon director of rugby and former France coach up against the incumbent Pierre Camus, He's very old school. He's 71 years old. And uh, it's... Um, but Pierre Camus, his big uh, objective for the next, uh, his next four years, if, he, if elected, would be to build a national stadium in the south of Paris. Uh, because, and it would be uh, the national rugby stadium because the Stade de France doesn't belong to the FFR. Um, whereas Bernard Laporte says that's just a nonsense. That's a vanity project and... It's not what French rugby needs. French rugby needs to spend its money on completely um, over, uh, or, yeah, overhauling the, the way that the game is coached at every level, but particularly junior level. Um, now, it's, it's not within his powers to get competitive rugby within, a, within the school system, but he can do something about um, putting in better coaches at clubs and, and, and going into schools and... and looking to attract talented sports people, uh, kids, into, into the clubs and then to train them and, uh, and to, to do it that way. So uh, I think really my own view is that uh, French, the French rugby, if it, if it is to get out of this trough in which it's been for the best part of a decade um, on a national level, it needs Bernard Laporte and it needs reform at, uh, at youth and grassroots level. That's really interesting. Uh, so let's just clarify a few things. Then there is no French, there is no rugby played in French schools. I find I find that absolutely astonishing. Um, yeah, no, there's, you you go around about the age of fourteen, fifteen, you can go. This is particularly common in football. You get selected to go to a, a special sports school academy, but that's only for the very best. And of course, rugby is a sport where. You, you develop so physically so much around the ages, between about the ages of 16 and 18. And so that's, that doesn't happen in France. And so, I mean, yeah, I just think to myself, how many talented young players slip through the net because they're not spotted at the age of 14, 15? Um, and, of course, because, yes, you can go to a club, but that's, you've got to want to do that. And, you know, we all, we all know what we were like as teenagers. And, you know, there's... There's a lot of other, particularly now in this day and age, there's a lot of other distractions, whereas at school rugby, you've got to play it. And so you might actually find 
tell you, you know what, I quite like rugby. I'm good at it. I love running over people. I love running around people. I love kicking. And so you get into it that way. Uh, whereas in the, the French way, that um, you may just never, you may just think, oh, rugby's not for me. I'm, never, I'm not going to give it a go. And, and, and you, you're never going to give yourself a chance to play it the way that you have to at school. So, yeah, no, no, it is. And, of course, now you look at these, like, for example, I remember watching on someone posted on Twitter earlier this year the uh, semi-finals of the Leinster Schools Cup, and it was played in front of about several thousand people. <laughs> yeah. And it was a wonderfully high standard. And, and that's also not only bringing on their skills, but their temperament. What it, from an early age, playing in front of big crowds, the teamwork, handling pressure, hand, handling the big occasion. And that's why, of course, that uh, you know, Ireland and England contested the Under-20 World Cup this year. And France have never, I don't think, they've certainly never been in the final. I think they've, in the last 10 years, have only been in the, the Under-20 final uh, semi-final once, I think, which for a country their size is a dreadful record. Yeah, uh, it really is. I mean, that 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 fact has gen- genuinely shocked me. Okay, so the other thing is Bernard Lepore. Now he's had quite the incredible career. He's been France coach. He's won a couple of Heineken Cups. I think they were mooting him as sports secretary or you know minister. Well, he was. Sports, that's right. Under that. the uh, end of the Nicolas Sarkozy government, uh, when he was elected in 2017, he. Uh, he stepped down as French coach after the 2007 World Cup, and then spent a couple of years as the the minister for the, I think as a junior minister for sports and uh, and fun, recreation, whatever. Yeah. So uh, he uh, he's had a he's had a he's an extraordinary man. I interviewed him actually in a in a well-known uh, Parisian cafe earlier this year, and uh, he's a he's a. I actually got married in uh, Rodez, in the, the town in Massata, France, where he's from. So he was very pleased to hear that. And uh, he's, a, he's an extraordinary character because he's absolutely um, buzzing with energy. He's, uh, he, he talks very quickly and he just sort of, everything about him is quick. It's, he's in a constant rush. But um, he's, uh, he's an ideas man and he throws out ideas. And not all of them are perhaps um, going to work, but... Uh, He's innovative and uh, he's full of energy and, uh, uh, and and really someone who who has identified uh, what's the matter with French rugby and uh, um, and wants to do something about it. Yeah, again, an interesting setup because that's not that's not the image that that I that that I have of him. Just simply for the fact that I looked at his Toulon team when he was there, they weren't the most exciting team. I looked at his French teams, and you think again. Well, the, this isn't particularly cutting edge. But from what, but from your, from what you're saying, I've I've got that completely wrong. Then. Well, from what I understand, one or two people have told me is that he, particularly in the last couple of years, he he more or less let the players with Wilkinson, etc., and the, that great generation, uh, Heyman and uh, uh, Backboater, etc., coach themselves. Yeah, I've heard and, that. And uh, particularly in the last year. Uh, i.e. the year just gone uh, when he was f- in full swing uh, campaigning for the uh, for the uh, FFR presidency. Oh, okay. he, he was less. In fact, he was. Uh, he, he did actually um, cut it back to part time, and then they um, they started doing badly. This is about a year ago, and so he was brought back. He was he was flying down from Paris, I think, on the. Tuesday and then um, coaching yeah. him a Friday, etc. And that was just not a, a, a good arrangement. But um, but no, I mean again, he's in a way he's a bit like I just described Noves. He's more of a manager than a than a coach. And um, he's um, but he, yeah, he's he's someone I think that uh, was good at uh, um, bringing together, managing the egos and also dealing with Mourad Boujelau, which I think uh, Toulon is very important. He was like a, uh, a a bridge, if you like, between the squad and between the presidents. And uh, so he's a politician, so uh, he knows how to handle people. He knows what's required in certain situations. And um, he's also got uh, experience of the amateur and the professional uh, setups in mm. France, which is uh, which is important, and it's something that Pierre Camus hasn't got. He's very much from the amateur, from the old, uh, 
from the old days. And uh, this is a criticism that's levelled at him, but he's really out of touch with, with how the French game has changed in the last decade. So how much influence does the Federation have over the top 14? Where does the balance of power lie here? Uh, it lies in the... Uh, the LNR, which is the governing body of the top 14, um, which is headed by uh, Paul Gauze, who's a controversial figure. He used to be the president of, uh, of Perpignan, played for them in the, uh, in the I think it was a back, second row, I think, second row of back row mm. uh, in the 70s. And uh, he's, he's a man who has negotiated these uh, eye-watering TV deals with Canal Plus in the last few years. Um, and um, he's, uh, of course, there's been a sort of um, uh, a thawing of, of relations between uh, the FFR and the LNR, culminating in, in July in the signing of a new accord, which gives, um, for the first time, the, uh, in this case, Guinovez, the, the French coach, much more greater access to the players. So, for example, in the November internationals just gone, he had the players for a full two weeks before the first test against Samoa, which is unheard of in in previous times. And similarly, during the Six Nations, he's going to have them for eight weeks, like the uh, oh, wow. the home nations. So, so that's going to be that's good for the national team. Um, and so, yeah, relations have improved because I think it's it's hard to. Uh, to uh, to overstate how shocked and and how humiliated the French were when they were thrashed 62-13 by New Zealand in uh, the quarterfinals of a World Cup last year, and uh, and that I think brought to a, to a degree brought people to their to their senses and thought, listen, it's no good if we've got the the, the national team is the shop window, and it's no good if we're getting thrashed uh, if we if we've got a good league um, if we're getting humiliated on the national stage, which is what we are now. So, so that's, um, uh, I think, brought the two parties together and, and relations are probably, they're not ideal, uh, they're far from it, but they're better than they've been probably for any time in the, uh, in the last 10, 15 years. Well, that's good to hear because the Six Nations without France is much, much poorer for it. Well, say without France, with this team that looks like France but, don't, but doesn't necessarily play like them. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's it. And just sorry, just to interrupt, yeah, you, but I think that's course. it. And it's also quite good to have Novez as a coach because he's quite a spiky character and he doesn't speak any English. And so it's sort of good in a way to to get the because France thrive when it's a feeling of them and us. And I think uh, another criticism levelled at Saint Andre is that he was he was a bit too sort of bland as a as a coach. And uh, whereas Novez is. Uh, is much more of a has a stronger character and is much more his own man. Yeah. Well, um, just changing subject slightly. Uh, my favourite team, or one of my favourite teams in the Premiership, is Saracens. Just because I love the scientific approach to everything, and people, I suppose, in France, it'd be looked at as kind of anti-rugby. Uh, the fact they've got their little stat packs and everything is tailored for each game. Is there a French club in the top fourteen which? sort of resembles the Saracens or doing things a little bit differently? It might just surprise us a bit. Uh, well, Claremont, I think, are the, are the team in uh, who are ahead of the game now in uh, fitness and uh, training. They're using, for example, have been using for about two years, drones in training to get a, um, uh, to get a bird's eye view of... Uh, of how the scrums go in the line-outs, the angles, the defensive alignments, etc. Uh, they've opened about a year ago uh, a multi-million pound state-of-the-art uh, training facility. I, was, uh, I had the good fortune to be down there in uh, in May and had a look at it, and it's just got every conceivable, the huge, huge gym and uh, very training pools, rehab pools, all, all, all that stuff. And obviously, the... the um, uh, uh, a complete rugby um, synthetic training ground and uh, oh, just everything and uh, and again they have uh, um, uh, like you were saying with Saracens they have uh, um, everything on uh, DVD broken down into an opponent's um, you know how how the opposition will scrummage defensively offensively they're different uh, 
um, scrum moves, what they do for penalties, everything like that. So, so that which is very unFrench, but that's something I think that John O'Gibbs, their their Kiwi, who's the forwards coach, has uh, has been instrumental in, and obviously they it's sort of. Uh, I think probably also something that was put in place by Vern Cotter and Joe Schmidt, of course, who yeah. was uh, coach there. Um, so, so they're ahead of the game. And I think actually that's uh, something that Mike Ford is going to be bringing, introducing to Toulon, because um, they, again, they've fallen in by the wayside in, in that respect. And uh, it's, um, so I think uh, Ford's going to bring a more rigorous uh, and, uh, meticulous uh, and, and greater diligence to the way they prepare and train for games with, of course, Mark Del Masso, who's highly respected. Um, and, um, yeah, so, no, so to answer your question, I think Claremont of the team, who probably most resemble uh, Saracens, of course, the one area where they're still uh, their great weakness is, is is in the top two inches when it comes to winning the big games. And uh, what is it now? I think they've been in 12 incredible. Top 14 finals, and they've lost 11. Yeah, they're like the Warrington Wolves. They're exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And and um, so uh, this is it. You can you can have a, the, the 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 best training facilities in the world, and uh, uh, you can look after the players as as much as you want. And uh, but it's it's nothing can actually apart from the, it's the players themselves who will will have that toughness to to close out matches and to win the big matches. And that's what Saracen showed so well last season. Right. Well, before I let you go, I've got to ask you about this because I read one of your articles in, I want to say Rugby World, but I don't want to get the, the wrong publication, um, regarding Stade, Stade Francais. Now, growing up, this was my favourite team. In fact, of, of all my rugby jerseys, about four of them are, are from Stad. So... <laughs> Can you just give me a bit of background um, about Stad? I know it's a very broad, long question, but they've obviously had some very good times, followed by some desperate times, and then they won the top 14. So what's the, what's the story here? How How is it they've found themselves in such volatile times? Well, it's, I mean, it's 20 years now, really, since it's Max uh, Gizrani, uh brought... Uh, and he's a man credited more. If you speak to French people in the know, they say it's people often say think it's uh, Murat Bourgeois who who sort of brought the glamour to French rugby. But it was no. it was Max during his, and of course uh, his, his coach of uh, in those days was uh, Bernard Laporte. Of course, uh, it was, twenty yeah. years ago, and they they brought the the, dark, the cheerleaders, the um, bringing the the kicking tea out, and the whole razzmatazz, and they made rugby. Sexy, if I can use that rather. Uh, yeah, quite well, I think it was word. what twelve years ago, where they when they first packed out the uh, well, Stade de France, was it not? Absolutely, eighty thousand. That's right, and uh, it's um, they were packing out the uh, the Stade de France for games against Toulouse, and uh, um, in fact, it was recently this season they uh, they it was Toulouse Stade Francais and the. The, the TV and everyone tried to desperately to bill it as a Le Classico, um, harking back to those days a decade ago. But that was the clubs, both clubs have, have really fallen on, on hard times since. And yes, Stade Francais did stun. I mean, it was it was almost like a Leicester City, what they did uh, uh, two seasons ago and winning the top 14 title because they, they come come from nowhere and they just had this great run after Christmas and um, then last season they narrowly avoided relegation and the problem is that they've I live um, very close to the Stade Francais Grand and it's um, I was there uh, 10 days ago to see them play Montpellier on a Sunday and I would say it was probably about a third full Really, and the thing is that Parisian uh, Paris is not a sports city. If you look at, if you compare Paris to London, you've got goodness knows how many uh, top-flight football teams in London, and and uh, you did once upon a time have London Irish, London Scottish, London Welsh, Harlequin, Saracens, Wasps, etc. Richmond, yeah. And um, you've only really got uh, you've got two rugby teams. You've got Paris Saint Germain as a football team. It's not a sports city, and it's certainly not a rugby city. 
despite the the best endeavours, and I admire Racing and uh, staff say greatly for for the way they try and um, uh, build a fan base. And there is a loyal fan base, but um, it's not very big, and they're quite fickle. And so the crowds have dropped away in the last year or so at uh, Stade Francais as the team struggled. And um, the the article that I wrote, which was in uh, Rugby World about a month ago, was the rumours that uh, the Savar family, who bought the club in 2011 when, uh, when there were talk of it going into liquidation, um, and he's pumped in. Now, the family... They make uh, uh, banknotes, and it's a very old wow. company, and uh, they have got a lot of money. And but the when he when Thomas Savar, who I think is 49 years old, and uh, when he uh, paid, I think around about initially 11 million uh, euros, it was against the wishes of two of his sisters. Um, but the patriarch of the family, their father agreed uh, that uh, it was a good thing to do and um they've they've built this new the uh, redone renovated the stad rambois it's a lovely stadium now and um but that came at uh, a price and they didn't have any money as a result to buy uh to buy new players to buy big name players but they did a great job of bringing young french players through plisson dante um uh, Hugo Bonneval to name but three as Rabba Slimani and um, uh, and, we, and we had a wonderful esprit de corps and in fact in some ways it was a contrast to to the approach of the likes of Toulon and, and Racing who, who paid these six figure salaries and um, and they, they won the title but then about six weeks ago rumours began to emerge that um, Thomas Savard the, the the father did think it was time perhaps to sell the club because they were just pumping in so much money that this couldn't go on. And um, because they weren't prepared to put in much money, they've seen um, about four players, Slimani, um, Hugo Bonneval, um, and a couple of others, I think uh, uh, Jeremy Sinzel is moving on. Um, They're leaving the club because they can get bigger offers elsewhere and being French they will there's no issue with um, meeting um, they'll meet the, the, the new rules that say a certain number of players have to be French so they're seeing their squad cherry picked and and at the same time there's this danger that they may be sold and who's going to buy uh, Star Francais it's a tough one because in Toulon there's rumours that uh, Bougelau is going to sell the club and that he's talking to a, um, an investor. Um, that's, it, that's rugby heartland down there. You're going to have no trouble attracting sponsors. Completely different proposition in, um, in Paris. And so uh, the future of the club is very uncertain and we're just going to have to wait to see what happens. But it would be a great shame and uh, that, it, that it has... Um, this has happened to Star Francais, and I'm fairly optimistic that they will find a buyer. But will they, if they can't increase their wage wage bill, will they see the rest of their their top players lured away? What do you think they're currently spending then, if you compare them to Toulon? Um, well, I couldn't say. I'm not sure what sort of money they're getting, but. Um, you you also get you see down in uh, one of the things that Toulon do is that they um, uh, players have their image rights and they make money that way and you've got two big boutiques in Toulon and you've got this the brasserie and uh, so there's, there's opportunities for players to to make money on the back of their image which there isn't really in Stade Francais because no no one really cares about the players it's because um, Parisians don't really don't really care and. Um, so, uh, I mean, I don't think the money's, you know, the money's not, we're not talking three or four times what they'll be getting in Stade Francais, but just enough to, to lure them away. And, uh, and, and the fact that they know at Toulon, they have, 
the club's not going to be in financial danger. And I think it's that uncertainty that uh, that is um, um, hovering around Stade Francais now is is making for an atmosphere of of doubt and anxiety among players, many of whom I think 12 in total have uh, come into the end of so, our contract in in June. So two questions off the back of that: What what happened to Max Cazzini? And the biggest mystery to me of all, why does Sergio Parise stay there? Yeah, and, and, and why, I think, why does Stade Francais keep him there? Because really he's, he spends a lot of his time um, in, in the naughty corner now because he's uh, getting suspended for various things. Is he really? Away in Italy duty, so he's... He's, he's someone I've watched him a couple of times this season. I think you know he's a, don't, don't get me wrong. He's been a fantastic servant for both Italy and Stade Francais and a wonderful player. But uh, he's, he's nearing the end of his powers now, and uh, it's it's it is actually time. I'm a big fan of John O'Ross, the South African, who uh, mm. who's been at um, uh, uh, been. I've never seen him play a bad game, and. Uh, he he's been playing at eight recently, and I think really he's uh, he's a he's a better player now than uh, Parise. Um, so I think you know, and imagine he's on quite a big wage bill. So that, that might be an idea to perhaps uh, um, you know, once he had, I th- I've got a feeling he re- he re-signed uh, last earlier this year for uh, a couple more years, but uh, we'll have to see. But. Um, uh, uh, Max, I think Max, he, he went uh, five, six years ago and I think he'd, he, he thought, I think rightly too, that he'd, he'd had his time there, he'd, he'd done what he needed to do and he'd taken the club from a, really a sort of a semi, semi-pro club uh, 20 years ago to, uh, well, what, five, five times top 14 champions reaching the Heineken Cup final and um, that's he he had he had done what he wanted to do and it was time for for someone else to come in and um but French rugby owes him a huge debt because he really did uh he really did put the glamour into French rugby and the glitz and and and, and he encouraged the people people like Mourad Bourgelau to, to get involved with rugby. Mm. Well I know I know a thing or two and the one thing I would say is uh, I know about kits and I think a wise thing for Stad to do would be to go back to that royal blue kit with the red flashes and get rid of this pink stuff. It's it's all very passe now. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. It's it's a it's a strange one that the uh this uh the the, the designs and I don't think that, that really helps and uh it it almost adds to the image of being a bit being a bit flaky and, like and not really knowing if... not really being confident in their in their own identity. Yeah. And, it feels uh, a bit sad. It, it felt great when they were winning, but now it just feels a little bit like they're trying too hard. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. Just... I think that's a good way of putting it, that they are trying too hard. And uh, it's... Um, it, it's Yeah, it's difficult times to start from, so it's, it's a shame because they are they are my local club and I do in, enjoy going there and they do make such an effort to get people involved and uh, um, to reduce ticket prices for example i went along to the european cup uh champion uh, challenge cup game about a month ago against uh, the romanian team the um you have to forgive me it's got a saracens in the name i can't yeah i know what you mean but anyway it was and you know it was again not a big crowd but it was five euros a ticket and it was just it was you know i just felt i should go along and support them because it's games like this where they, they need the support and uh so, so I am. Fingers crossed that uh, someone will, either the Savar family will, will keep involved, or, or someone will come in and uh, with some money and uh, and um, and and do great things. So, uh, just another point, actually, on that. They've also probably been hurt by the fact that was it five years ago? Um, this Qatar consortium um, pumped a huge amount of money into Paris Saint Germain, the football club, which yes. is if you've never been to. Uh, staff might say it's it is across the road. It's uh, you could quite easily um, drop kicker, um, so drop kick away. And and the fact that they're having so so much success now for for kids uh, who like their sport and were perhaps undecided um, between rugby and football in Paris. Now you've got PSG and you've got all these sexy players from around the world. 
um, and they're doing well, and they, they win the the French league every every year. I think that's also hit hit the Stade Francais fan base, and perhaps now people, parents, uh, mums and dads are, are saving their pennies to go and take their kids to see PSG rather than to go and uh, see Stade Francais. Yeah, it's a shame that. Um, well, not to leave it on too uh, too much too much too much of a downer. Uh, Gavin, can you tell everyone where we can find your work, where we can find your social media, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Gavin Mortimer Seven, and uh, particularly uh, you, you'll find me doing the Midi Olympic roundups on uh, Monday and a Friday, translating all the news into uh, into English and giving it a little uh, Anglo-Saxon spin. Uh, or Celtic spin, as the case may be. And, uh, I mean, I, I do my regular column for Rugby World on there, uh, on all, all everything French-related, really. On uh, Again, just giving an insight into the... Uh, having been in France for, for a while and uh, uh, having French in-laws, etc., I know uh, quite well the French mentality. And, and uh, so it's... Uh, I think I like to think, I hope I do, anyway, shed a little bit of light on... Uh, on the mind, the workings of the French mind. So uh, that's in rugbyworld.com. Well, I for one think you do an excellent job at, at doing exactly that. So uh, thank you so much. Cheers, for, JB. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Speak to you soon. Well, there are some people who are just simply brilliant at this whole interviewing thing, and Gavin certainly falls into that category. Huge thank you again to Gavin for coming on, and thank you for bringing his breadth of knowledge to the Rugby Dungeon, and, uh, well, that's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant podcast. Um, if you've got anyone in mind that you'd like me to interview, please let me know. Get in contact via Facebook or via Twitter, at the Rugby Dungeon or at Jay Beardmore. And until next week, thank you for listening, and uh, let the boys play. Goodbye.